Welcome to the Slice Podcast, brought to you by Jackfruit. Jackfruit brings you the latest shit you don't hear anywhere else. Hey, what's up, Doc? Welcome to Jackfruit, Doc. Welcome back to the Slice Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Lee, here with DNR. And today we have a very successful and talented guest who is a Facebook executive and has a quite an extensive background in digital marketing. Welcome, Toda. How are you doing today, man? I'm good. I'm good, fellas. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on the show. You were, uh, were you born in the Bay Area? I was born in Honolulu, but I grew up from like age three uh, uh, in the Bay Area, in the East Bay. So um, you went to SFSU, right? I did. I did. After going to University of Hawaii. So after I graduated high school, I went to uh, University of Hawaii, partied a little too hard. Uh, um and, uh, and came back to the Bay to take care of my grandparents uh, who lived really close to state. And so state was an easy choice for me. I was like, all right, cool. I could kind of live with them for a little bit, take care of them and then still go to state, which is like really close. So yeah, I, I graduated from state. Nice. What was your first job that you ever had? First job I ever had. I was bagging groceries at Albertsons uh, at the ripe age of, I want to say 15, 14 maybe. Um, you know, I grew up in a really affluent, mostly white area. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bay area, I grew up in Moraga. It's right next to Orinda and Lafayette. And it's, uh, it's actually where Tim Hardaway, uh, lived for a little bit when he was on the Warriors and all those kids didn't work. All those kids didn't work. But, uh, my Filipino immigrant mother, uh, wasn't about to let me just sit on my ass and, and not work. And so, uh, at the, right when I was able to get a worker's permit, she's like, you're going to go get a job. And I did. And I loved it. I loved it so much. I thought it was cool. I thought it was cool to bag groceries. I have a lot of, uh, a lot of respect for people that bag groceries, get the carts, bring them back. Um, it was a good, it was a good first job for real. Wait, so you're, you're half Filipino? I have Filipino, half ja- Japanese. Nice. So what, what made you decide to get into the, the marketing path, the marketing career? <laughs> I got in the marketing by accident, to be honest with you. And I, I, that sounds super cliche. So let me back that up a little bit. I graduated top of my class from state and I took the LSAT in hopes of becoming an attorney and got good scores, got into good law schools. And when I went to go tour law schools, my girlfriend uh, was like, no, you can't do this, man. You, you, you can't be an attorney. And it, and it wasn't like a, like, a, like, a, like a sexy attorney, right? It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go be you know, like a district attorney and go like to defend the people or I'm not going to go be Ari Gold and like be a Hollywood agent and do contracts. I was literally going to do wills and trusts, like probate, like probate attorney. What that means is like, I, I, I fill out your will, I notarize it, I go down to city hall, then I go back and I do it over and over again. And it's a, it's a pretty good career. But for me, like when I got, when I got into law school and I started to assess if it was right for me, I just realized it wasn't, it wasn't at all. It wasn't at all. And I ended up dropping out and uh, I ended up joining a company in 2008, uh, a little startup called Facebook. And it was a startup back then. It was, uh, it was super small. MySpace was bigger than it. Yahoo was trying to buy it. And my parents hated me because I dropped out of law school. And I just said, this looks cool. Cause it's like a bunch of young kids running around. Um, it's a young industry. And my wife was already, or my girlfriend was already industry, in, the, in, the, in the industry. And she's like, this seems right for you. And so I got into Facebook 
as an entry-level advertising operations person, just setting up ads on, on the site. And uh, that was my first foray into advertising because I started to work with brands and ultimately worked for those brands that I worked with. And so um, again, by accident, truly by accident, just uh, what, I, what I didn't say too, is like when I dropped out of law school, I dropped out in 2008, that's the middle of recession. And, uh, and I applied to write 200 jobs around the Bay Area and literally Facebook was the only company wow. that called me back, the only company. So again, it's, it's just by luck. And That's so I'm, I'm, I'm not BSing you when I'm saying it was like, I just fell into it. Like I literally just fell into it and I just found a knack for it. It's a, it's a great industry. It's an industry that like, obviously it's not common to see us in there. Um, but I loved it. I loved the ability to tell stories and, uh, and yeah, I've, I've just, I've just stayed with it ever since. How did you uh, explain it to your parents? Like, you know, what, <laughs> okay. Oh man, you want that conversation. You want that conversation. Uh, well, my parents still don't know what I do. I'll tell you that right now. My, my parents still don't know what I do. My parents up until like, I don't know, man, like they were so obsessed with, you know, a postgraduate degree, like so obsessed. They're like, all right, you're not going to get a law degree. You're going to get an MBA. Uh, and I was like, what? I don't want to get an MBA. Come on. Um, they were just obsessed with that. And when I've had to tell them what I do, I think conceptually they, they understand that I work at a tech company that's obviously on the news. And when I've gone to other tech companies and other brands, it's gone on the news, but literally the first time I ever told my, my father, like, I was like, this is what I do. We were watching the Super Bowl. I turn on the commercials and he loves the commercials. And I was like, dad, that's what I make. I make those, I make those commercials. Like that's my job. And he's like, what? And he's like, and he told me I was lying. So <laughs> it's an untraditional route. My father went into medicine. My mother, um, my mother didn't work, but uh, I still think they struggle with actually understanding what exactly I do outside of like being able to point to a commercial during like the NBA finals and say, I did that. Damn. And like, while you're in this uh, career path too, like, you think you share us like one obstacle or challenge that you have faced in this career, this line of, line of work that you're in? I mean, <laughs> the obstacles are endless, man. Coming in when I was 22, 23 years old, you know, especially in, in the tech industry, in a non-engineering role, you don't see yourself there. Like you, you don't see a lot of Asian people. Um, and that alone is an obstacle because right. you, you don't know if there's like a path for you, right? Mm -hmm. um, you don't know if you like, you'll even be successful or you'll be, you know, you'll be just like a, you'll stick out like a thumb and they won't accept you. You know, I've been told many times in my career at least, by white colleagues, like, yo, Eric, like, I don't see you as no, I don't see you as like an Asian person. I see you as another white person, man. Like, like we're good. Like, like I don't see you as different. And that was told to me like really early in my career, but it also signaled to me that there's not a lot of me out there in this mm -hmm. industry. And that will, that will is either an opportunity for me to help change, or it will be a roadblock that they will never accept me as an Asian person in their industry, which is predominantly white. And, you know, as I've gone through all my career, obviously I've tried to blow through those roadblocks, um, but you still see it all the time, man. Like I'm on a, I'm on a, I'm on a few board of directors right now. And, you know, sometimes I walk into a boardroom and people think I'm DoorDash, like oh. people legit, people legit think I'm DoorDash. And they're like, Oh, like, are you here to drop off the, the lunch for the board meeting? And I was like, no, I'm here for the board meeting. Like, oh, wow. You know, I walk into a room and like some, someone thinks I'm IT. 
right? Um, <laughs> and, and, and so like, like they, don't, they don't necessarily see me as a marketing executive, but they see me as what they believe they see me as. And that happens all the time, man. I've been told by executive recruiters, like to my face, point blank, like a few years ago, executive recruiters come to me all the time and they're like, hey, there's this new role, this new marketing role that, that you should look at. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And, and I meet up with them and they're like, you know what? I'm just going to be frank with you. Um, we're at the, the company may not be looking for another Asian American marketing executive because there's so many of you out there. And I was like, what are you talking about? There's not, there's not many of us out there. Like, well, you know, like you're, they want more diversity. And I'm like, you, you really telling that to my face? Um, so I think there's been struggles and hurdles for sure, for sure, right? But again, like my what, what fuels me isn't necessarily those struggles and those hurdles. It's being able to get through them so the next person that's coming after me doesn't have to deal with that BS, man, that I can right. hold that door open and be like, no, 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 no. I've already had this conversation. Like, you're good. You're good. Like, go have, go have other struggles, right? I've already been through this door. Um, that's what fuels me to go through those. And, you know, I, I was on a conversation earlier today where, where someone's like, when you don't see yourself, what do you think in your mind? And I was told early on in my career by a black executive that became a really good friend of mine. He told me straight up, he's like, if you don't see yourself out there, that's an opportunity for you to go be the first, like straight wow. up. And, yeah. and you gotta go and you're like, you gotta take, like, don't see it as an obstacle. Don't see it as a hindrance. You just got to do whatever it takes to go be the first, because if you don't do it, who will, but also if you don't do it, there may not be another one after you. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And so that's kind of fueled me, you know, at least through my career, through the companies that I've been at. How many um, employees were there when you first started at Facebook? When I started at Snapchat, it was 90. Uh, Facebook, I want to say like 400, 400 around the world. It's, uh, it's 80,000 now. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's, I was there, I was there early, man. I was there early. I was like, it was honestly one of the greatest first jobs you could have, like first corporate job you could ever have. Um, cause it was, just, it was like an extension of college essentially. When you joined, did you know how big, uh, Facebook was or what or were you kind of like us oh, just a whatever startup hell no, hell no. um <laughs> my parents told me it was a mistake to go to facebook like straight up and not be not just because i dropped out of law school and i just didn't end up becoming an attorney they're just like think about it like myspace is bigger than it in the news friendster is bigger than it um yahoo is is likely going to buy it and it's a huge risk that you're undertaking and to me, I just, I just told them, I was like, I get it. I get it. Like I actually need a job. And this is the only place that honestly is calling me back. And at the time I was with my girlfriend for, uh, for about four years, five years. And I was like, you know, I'm probably going to marry, I'm definitely going to marry her. And so if I just stay at Facebook for a little bit, save up money. And if it goes under, I'll go, I'll, I'll go to law school, but at least I'll have enough money to buy her a wedding ring. Like I'll be good. And, and so that's, that's what kept me going through that. But I was just like, I, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to marry, marry my girlfriend, man. Uh, whatever happens after that, like I'll, I'll figure out I'm smart enough to do it. Um, but yeah, I, I never thought in a million years that Facebook would do what it's doing today. And, and as big as it is today, for sure. Wow. I, I know you kind of touched on it too, but now that Facebook is this big, right. Um, do you see, I know people normally say glass ceiling, but do you see any bamboo ceilings in tech? All the time. And I hate that term, man. I hate that term. Like, it's just, it just seems so, 
It's just not a, a good term. I mean, I think what it is, it's a ceiling that you see for many minorities. Um, right. but, but I do think that where the Black and Latinx community have succeeded is, is getting past like a certain specific level. Um, and the reason is, is because a lot of times we're hindered by stereotypes, we're hindered by biases, we're hindered by cultural nuances. And those cultural nuances rest on the model minority. Right. And we've all heard this. We've all heard about the model minority. We all been likely called it. But the model minority is such a destructive label because it says that you're subscribing to a way of life you didn't you yourself didn't subscribe to. And it places us on a pedestal, making us white adjacent and a bit raceless. But it also pits us against other minority communities just in general. Right. Absolutely. In the workplace. In the workplace, it's even more destructive. I do think that, and there are so many people that actually subscribe to this, which actually kind of makes me sick. And it says that where you're going to put your head down, you're going to work super hard, you're not going to challenge, and you're not going to subscribe to the definition of leadership that white corporate America has defined. And what that is, if you look at like what leadership really means in a definition in corporate America, again, it's it's based on it's based loosely on you know a white middle-aged man who's hyper aggressive who's potentially abrasive that will challenge obviously advocate for his team but will win at all costs mm-hmm. when's the last time you see when's the last time you know you've seen someone that's a model minority do that never right and so i do think that if that's the definition and if that and and if the model minority is what they're considering us of course we're not going to break through of course we're not and so i do think that that bamboo ceiling is what's hindering us. And, you know, Bloomberg a month ago, a month and a half ago, wrote this piece that, uh, that stated the need for an Asian American leader or Asian American leaders has never been greater. And we are still actively waiting for them. And there's that Michael Jordan meme where he's like, and I took that personally. And I took that personally, right? Because I've been working my ass off and so many others have been working their asses off to get to where we are today. And you're saying we don't exist? Like, that's an issue right there for me, man. And I do think that, again, that is the stigma and stereotype that we're actively going up against right now as we speak. And this conversation never could have happened around this five years ago, 10 years ago. But we're in this mm-hmm. larger cultural awakening right now that isn't just about us. It isn't just about the Black community. It isn't just about the female community. This larger societal and and, and larger scale cultural awakening where we're really questioning what truths have we held dear and are they actual truths or are those are those are they fairy tales that we've been told and i think the model minority is one of those fairy tales and so actively try and dismantle that and really showcase the executives that look like me and you that are doing things that don't subscribe to that that will speak up that will challenge because again it's not like we weren't here we've been here it's that we're not going back to what you think we were at. Absolutely. And just touching back on the point of the model minority, it's definitely, you're definitely right. It does pit against other minorities and so forth too. And, you know, when I guess executives or people in the certain career of field, they, you know, see an Asian person and they're not acting like model minority, they don't know how to act either. Uh, they don't mm-hmm. know how to perceive that or to receive that or to work with you on that, you know? I mean, I think the education on how do you work with Asian American colleagues is relatively under invested in. 
just generally mm -hmm. speaking. And I, mm -hmm. I say this because yes, we've made a tremendous amount of investments overall as an, as a, as a corporate world in diversity and inclusion, but we stopped that past November and we treated diversity and inclusion and the trainings of diversity and inclusion as a binary black and white. How do you deal with black and white relationships in a workplace, right? Necessary for sure, but you don't stop there. And I do think that many HR and DNI departments don't understand the nuances that go with dealing and having a multi-ethnic, multi-Asian faceted organization. What I mean by that is, you know, we're not just all East Asian, like straight up, like, and like there are nuances between East Asian, Southeast, Southeast Asian, South Asian, even Pacific Islander. And the cultural differences between those, you need to understand. So then you know, if you're calibrating people, a South Asian, an East Asian, a Southeast Asian, you know that there are certain cultural nuances you need to take account for versus just saying, well, that, that person who has an East Asian last name, they just never talk. And so I don't know if they want to talk. I don't know if they have anything to say, but they're kind of shy. And so I'm probably not going to, you know, I want them to speak up. And so I can't promote them this round. And so I do think that there are so many conversations happening right now on how do you identify those nuances and augment your your brand and your, your corporation, your organizations around those nuances. So you are more inclusive. So you are more equal. And, and yeah, I just think that, uh, I, I just think honestly, like we just haven't done enough work to, to do that. And we're glad that you know, we have people like you who are representing, you know, us um, in that field and in the executive level too. And, you know, stepping outside of the office life, you know, with all the attacks that's been happening, you know, racism that's happening towards Asian people, did you ever experience racism growing up? Oh, I know you said so you, yeah. yeah, I know you said you lived in you know, an affluent white neighborhood. So I'm yeah, pretty sure. Like, you know, I, th I think the thing is, is that the racism I grew up with, I thought was totally normal. Um, I've always struggled, to be honest with you, with my, with my Asian-ness just because of that. And, you know, growing up in the town I grew up in, you're not, you're, you don't see yourself a lot, right? You don't see the people that, 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 that look like you a lot. And so you, you automatically self-loathe and you don't feel comfortable in your own skin because people are pointing out your differences. They're calling you a chink. They're calling you a Jap. They're doing the slanty-eyed thing um, on the playground. And so you're like, damn, like, 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 do I hate my stuff? Do I hate what I look like? And then you realize you don't have a community to go to where they're like, no, like, that's not okay. And no one's going to stand up for you. And you grow up. And obviously you grow up and, you know, you got to get a homecoming date and a prom date. And then you got, you know, only girls out here were white girls. And the white girls are telling you they don't like Asian guys. And you're like, well, like, how am I supposed to feel about that? Like now I, now I feel even more targeted and I feel even more like worse about being Asian. And then you go and I see my cousins in San Francisco and they tell me I'm not Asian enough because of where I'm from. And they tell, they call me, they call me white man, Eric um because Damn. of how i talk and because of how i dress and so therefore like i'm somewhere on that spectrum of insular insular racism but also external racism and and you know the thing is it's that again like i always thought it was normal i thought everybody dealt with this but i realized somewhere down the line that the racism I felt was pretty was unique to where i was growing up in and the situation that i was in being from a specific area and having family members in another area and how they viewed me. 
but again, like that's kind of what fuels my fight right now is the fact that none of that matters. The racism that, that I've experienced does not matter because to an attacker, to a harasser, to someone barking at you in a restaurant, which has happened to my family many times. And I've had to leave a restaurant. Like someone, if someone does that to you, do they, do they really, are they going to ask you, Hey, when you grew up, like uh, how many Asian people you grew up around, man? And then attack you? No, they just see you as they just see you and me as Asian, and that's it. And they'll attack. And I think that commonality is what fuels my fight to say, I don't care if you think I'm super Asian. I don't think I don't care if you don't think I'm super Asian. I'm just gonna go fight for people that look like me. The end, right? And so, um, yeah, I think racism to me has always played a strong part of my life, but it's also I've been able to weaponize it in a way where it becomes a part of my experience and a part of my story of what I want, what I don't want for my kids who are mixed race. Oh, I know that, that you've been a powerful voice and a key player for the Asian community right now. Can you speak or share about some of the projects that you've been currently working on and launched? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we just started the conversation around this. Uh, I met with Congress today to talk about how do you fuel legislation using tangible third-party data that isn't just from the Asian American community. Many times, um, the information that Congress is sent is, is really just from the Asian American community. This is how we feel, this is what we need, et cetera. I think we need a larger perspective with how other communities view the Asian American community so that we have a bigger picture on what we need to solve. Um, and so spoke with Congress today, talking about how do we get more data pipelines to them so they can make more informed decisions based on, on uh, for legislation that can help us whether it be taxes, whether it be funding nonprofits, whether it be you know making sure there's more education in our school curriculum, whatever that is. Another, another thing I'm working on, which we just launched the other day, was the launch of the Asian American Foundation, TAF. And if you tuned in, you saw former President Obama, former President Clinton, former President Bush talking about the need for a larger foundational or organization to fund all non all Asian American nonprofits because Asian American nonprofits are historically underfunded at in comparison to other minority communities. So it's a big umbrella to go fund nonprofit and, and to nonprofits and and the work doing going there. But really, a lot of the work that I'm doing, man, I'm I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to be everywhere to be honest with you. And the reason why I say that is because this is a window of opportunity for us that has tremendous amount of intersectionality, meaning this is the, again, we are in a larger cultural awakening. That's one area. We are also at the advent of this communication technology called social media, where you can take a message. I mean, Jack does the best job at it and spread it across the internet. You can, you could say something through your platform, through your platform and hundreds of thousands of people will see it. They'll take action on it. Right. That's the first time in history. Like our ancestors never had that, right? Especially when they were being persecuted. We have the access now to fight back persecution with the platform that you created. And the other intersectionality that we have now is that our generation grew up on more even terms with other communities versus socioeconomically, we may have been disadvantaged before. And now we have more of a say and a right to fight for our equality because we have, we're college educated, we're high school educated, we have great, you know, we have good jobs, we're in more executive levels, and therefore we're on way more of an even, even playing field than they were in the 60s or even the 1940s. And so all those three things are intersecting that provide us a window of opportunity. I've told some people it's like a smash and grab, you know, to, uh, 
to make sure we make change, to make sure that you know we are advocating for justice and equality, calling out hate crimes like like, like you guys are doing, um, but really advancing ourselves. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see all this kind of come together and finally, I think there's going to be some kind of movement and change that will hopefully uh, take place. So I'm looking forward to this future. And um, lastly, let's let's say we're, you met a college student that was kind of lost in life and didn't know which direction or what major they want to do. What one advice would you kind of give them to set them up for success? I mean, do what makes you happy, man. I mean, that's that, that, that's the biggest thing. I think like like many, many kids, I was... Uh, I was pressured into being really good at math. I'm awful at math, straight up. Like, I'm just, I'm just not good. Um, and there's like so much pressure. There's so much pressure to be really good, right? To be good at math, to be good at science, because our parents believed that that was the key to success, right? You go into math, you go to science. But I think I've proven, hopefully at least, that you don't need to go into that route. You could go into a more, a more creative route uh, on the business side and still, and still just as lucrative, still just as successful. Um, and so the, I, what, what I want to encourage, you know, college kids that do feel lost is find what, find your passion. And my only suggestion to you is just try your ass off to be the best at it. Like that's, that's the only suggestion. If you're going to do it, be the best at it. Right. And, and work on your craft, love your craft, respect your craft. And that's something that I've taken a heart over, you know, my decade plus, you know, being in the marketing industry is I'm not the best for sure, but I, I am trying my ass off to be the best. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, the best marketer that I, I can be and the best advertiser that I can be, not just for the industry, but for, again, for people that come after me and, and hopefully to show, and this is why I lecture at Cal and Stanford, uh, because I want to tell these kids like, yeah, you're going to get pressure to, to go be in science and go be in accounting and go be in law and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I just hope that you just don't lose that work ethic, but you could put that to something that you actually care about like something that you will actually fuel you and something that, you know, you can make a difference in this world with. Wow. That was powerful. <laughs> that was awesome. Th thank you so much, Eric. Uh, and I hope that, you know, uh, people who are listening now, you know, would really grasp what you just said and, you know, follow their passion too and, and just keep representing. And on that note, you know, thank you so much for uh, you know, coming today and, and speaking with us and uh, keep doing the great work that you're doing. Thanks, Sada. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, appreciate it, fellas. You keep doing the great work, you know, like you are certainly a voice for our generation. Um, and you are, you've been doing this a long, lot longer than I have, right? Even you, you, I mean, you two have been doing this a lot longer than I have. So please continue the fight, continue the fight. Um, and just remember this, I know it gets really hard. I know it gets really hard looking at the stuff that you, you, you two do. Um, but just know this, that a lot of people fought before us so that we can have this fight. Absolutely. And never, never, ever, ever forget that. Like we are living those ancestors dreams right now. And that has to fuel you through literally the darkest of times. And I know it fuels me through those darkest of times. Just remember that. Absolutely. Awesome. Tata, thank you so much for your time today. Of course, of course. If you guys need anything else, you let me know, all right? For sure. All right, take care. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to The Slice. 